You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, the, the phone call came on a, on a Saturday morning, bright and early. I, I just stepped out of the shower and I was getting ready to, to make the one hour journey from Adelaide to a, a regional centre about an hour's drive away. Uh, I was to be one of the guest speakers at a seminar on leadership and church growth. As I recall, I was in about my, maybe toward the end of my second year of ministry, and in my church, the Brooklyn Park Church of Christ, there'd been enough growth and enough exciting things happening. Uh, I was only a couple of years out of college, but there were enough things happening for me to have been given this opportunity to speak at this, at this seminar, which was for the whole of the state. And so I was in the final stages of getting dressed, and I received a phone call. And it was a very distressed man indeed. It was, in fact, the minister of this church. I knew him. His name was Des. And uh, he was crying. And I said, Des, what on earth is wrong? And he said, Graham, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I said, tell me what? He said, uh, overnight, my, my, my wife has had a word from, from God. I said, Right, uh, how does that affect me? He said, the word is, you're not meant to come to this seminar today. Now, it was very interesting. At a recent, at a recent minister's conference, we'd established that there were some real differences in the approach of my ministry and the approach that Des was taking in his ministry. And I was seen as a little bit entrepreneurial, a little bit growth-oriented. He was a bit more spiritually focused. And we'd had a, this had come up in a discussion group. And now here we were some weeks later and Des telling me his wife was getting a message that I shouldn't come to the seminar. And I was a little stunned. I mean, I'm just in my 20s. I'm just out of college. I've never experienced this before. I said, uh, Des, how, how did she get that message? He said, oh, my wife gets sweaty palms. He said, she gets really sweaty palms. She's been tossing and turning all night. And then she said, God, what are you saying? Oh, Grand Agnew's not meant to come. So uh, I, I said as a joke, so Des, you'd like me to ring Ted Hurd, who was the, the director of home missions. You'd like me to ring him and say I'm sick. He said, oh, would you? <laughs> Seriously. I said, Des, that's a joke. I'll ring him and tell him exactly what's happened. And I did. And I didn't, I didn't go to that seminar. I just thought it's not, it's not worth it. And Ted, and Ted agreed. Let's just, we'll forget it. We'll put, we'll put you on deck some other time. And uh, in those days, uh, full Saturdays with the family, our little girl, uh, Tamara, were pretty hard to come by. So it was, a, now, you know, a very bizarre experience uh, early in the ministry. Friends, over the years, I've seen, the, I've seen Christians abuse, abuse the notion of God's guidance and use it in a very subjective way to express their own personal viewpoints and opinions. I've seen that. I experienced it then. In contrast, what we have here in Acts 15 is an approach to the guidance of God which, which seems real. It seems authentic. It's an approach that virtually removes the idea of subjectivity and personal bias and it puts the focus on God-honouring outcomes. What's the setting? The setting is, is the church in Jerusalem and the leaders have gathered and they want to make a response to, some situ- to a situation that's happening up in the, in the Gentile church of Antioch. And they would have been seeking God's guidance 
They would have been praying about it. They would have been trying to work out what God would have them do. And look at what happens. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 15, just read to us by Graham. Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church, decided to choose some men and send them to Antioch. It's clear God's plan was being revealed through the collective wisdom of the apostles, the elders, in fact, the whole church. But this consensus had not been achieved purely on the basis of personal opinion and viewpoint. Because when it comes to the letter which was to be delivered by these guys, the, 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 decision, of make, the, sorry, the decision making process was described in this way. Look at verse 28. The Holy Spirit and we have agreed not to put any other burden on you. Now, friends, I love this verse. I really love this verse because it highlights the fact that seeking God's guidance is more often than not a combination of the mysterious movement of God's spirit and the common sense of the person who's seeking the guidance and our use of our God-given ability to think. Too often when we seek God's guidance in a particular matter, we put all the emphasis on God and his part in the process while absolving ourselves of any responsibility. It can happen. The truth is we do have a part to play in this process in terms of our discernment, in terms of showing faith, taking risks, using our God-given powers to think. Uh, this tension, this tension between, between our role and God's role is succinctly expressed in an old saying that you've heard me use before. Um, is, is God's guidance a kick or a call? Um, in other words, is it a matter of God mysteriously calling us in a strange, predetermined way over which we have very little influence or control? Or is it a matter of him giving us a kind of spiritual kick in the rear, telling us to get on with, and, uh, with, to get on with a certain course of action that should be clearly evident? As the, way, as the best way to honour his name and to serve his kingdom purposes. Now, of course, the truth is it's, it's generally not one or the other. It's generally a combination of both. And that's, that, that becomes so clear from the biblical record. Generally a combination of both. Now, that's an easy statement to make. It's easy to say that, but it can be a very challenging process when you're praying over a possible career change. When you're trying to unravel a source of conflict within the family, when you're seeking guidance on whether to accept a promotion or not, when you're endeavouring to decide whether or not to accept a certain opportunity for Christian service, it's easy to sort of say something like that, but that may not necessarily help in the process of your prayer. There can be confusion, there can be uncertainty, there can be frustration, there can even be disappointment as we desperately seek a clear word from God as to what we should do. Now, friends, in the remaining moments, I want to pose four simple questions, which I trust will go some way, some way, toward demystifying God's guidance, because this is an area that a lot of us struggle in. And we're not going to solve it all, by the way, in 20 minutes, but we may be able to raise some things that will at least get some dialogue happening. First question is this. Does God want us to know the future in detail? Is that one of his aims? I think we all experience moments when we'd like to know what lies ahead, wouldn't we? I mean, we'd like to know how things are going to work out. Most of us have a, a built-in aversion to making big mistakes. We don't like to do that. 
we, we, we'd like to see how things are meant to turn out so we can fall into place with the various steps. Let's face it, when we stand before Jesus in eternity, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to hear, nice job, but you missed really what I had in mind for you. I mean, we don't want to hear that. How disheartening would that be? To be told of what we could have achieved, the goals we could have realised, the difference we could have made to the world if we'd had more faith. And that's the perfect segue, perfect segue to explain why God doesn't want us to know the future in detail. He wants us to trust him and take the journey one step at a time. The Bible says your word is a lamp to my feet. It doesn't say it's a massive searchlight illuminating every lane of the freeway ahead. Like it doesn't say that. It says it's a lamp to my feet. And friends, that tells me that it's a matter of, I mean, life is, a very, life is very predictable. It's a very perilous journey. And whilst God does reveal, he does reveal broad and exciting visions to his people, always has, always will. When it comes to the detail, it's generally one step at a time. That's how it works in God's economy. And that logically leads to the next important question for today. Does God want us to be 100% certain before we make our decisions? Now, I've spoken to many people over the years who've held the view that you have to be 100% certain before stepping into what you believe to be God's will. Now, that's understandable. I mean, after all, if you're facing a life-changing decision, the selection of a life's partner, an overseas posting, a change of job, which university to attend, whether or not to have some fairly risky medical procedure. I mean, you want to be sure, as sure as possible. But here's the question, friends. Is that the way it is in life, generally? I mean, do we generally achieve that level of certainty? Is that the way the journey of faith unfolds? Well, generally... Generally not. I mean, were there clouds in the sky when Noah was asked to build the ark? No. But he went ahead and built anyway. <laughs> Had Sarah received confirmation from her gyno that she was expecting before she and Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees to start a great nation? No. But they left anyway. Did Joshua inspect the walls of Jericho for subtle little cracks and little Weaknesses before he began the march around the city in response to God's promise that if they did that, the walls would fall. No, he just set out and started marching. And this story is repeated over and over in the Bible. Men and women of God responding to what they believe to be God's will and doing so with minimal certainty, nothing like 100%. What about us here at Northside? Did we have any idea of what we were letting ourselves in for, when we responded to a one-page letter, that's all it was, a one-page letter from a developer who said he wanted to do something with this site. Did we have any idea of the six-year journey we'd be in for in our response to that letter? Of course not, but we stepped out in faith anyway. Friends, Hebrews 11 is known as the great faith chapter as it outlines the heroism of men and women a great range of people who, who made a dramatic impact on the history of Israel. And, of course, what is the recurring little phrase that keeps cropping up in that Hebrews 11? 
Three words. It was faith. It was faith. It was faith. Noah, Abraham, all of these. It was faith. It was faith that, faith that caused these giants of the Old Testament to make God smile. I say make God smile because that's how I interpret verse 1 of Hebrews 11. It was by their faith that these people of ancient times won God's approval. And so friends, you and I know that in seeking God's guidance, rarely, rarely will we be 100% sure of how things are going to turn out. But that's the place we need to be in. That's the place we need to be in because that's where our dependence on him reaches its maximum potential. Now, there's a third question. Does God want us to be happy or holy? Now, let me hasten to say he doesn't want us to be, un- to be unhappy. That's for sure. But it's a question of what we mean by happy. In God's economy, happiness is far more than the absence of hardship. It's far more than the absence of a challenge or tough times. In God's economy, happiness is far different to that. Happiness from God's perspective is far more than material wealth, status, power or fame. Sometimes we as Christians, and I count myself in this, we can lapse into a belief that if only we had more money, if only we had a bigger house, if only we had a better job, we'd be happy. Now, once you're on this pathway, it's not too many steps to embrace the idea. It's a kind of thinking. If you go down this pathway, it's not difficult to justify certain decisions as being part of God's guidance because they'll make us happy. You see the danger of that. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that more money, bigger house, better job, more toys and gadgets... These may not be part of God's will for our lives. I mean, that's the way it flows for some people. You'd have real trouble being a minister at Northside if you couldn't accept that as just a fact of life. But to interpret God's guidance purely on the basis of what might make us happy is a very superficial kind of theology indeed. God's ultimate desire for all of us is that we should be holy. Not holier than thou, but holy as in separate, called out. You've heard us give that definition of holiness before. Like like as in Romans 8, 29. Look at this. Those whom God had already chosen, he also set apart that separation, that holiness. Why? To become like his son. So that his son would be the first among many believers. Friends, God's overall plan for your life and mine is that increasingly we will become like Jesus. That's, it's, that's, that's his ultimate will. You, you think about God's will. That's his ultimate will, that we will increasingly become like Jesus, that we will reflect his values, his attitudes, his care, his compassion, his service to others, his sense of generosity. Does this mean we may see some of the things that the world considers to be sources of happiness, that we may see some of these things in a different light? Of course, we may see some of the things the world considers the sources of happiness to be fairly superficial, fairly lightweight, fairly temporal. Of course, that's that's part of spiritual perspective. Bev and I are in the French town of uh, Strasbourg in uh, in 2008, and our tour bus rounded this corner. 
And almost as an afterthought, the tour guide said, oh, oh by the way, behind you, there, that, that's St. Nicholas's Church. That's where Dr. Albert Schweitzer was the minister for 12 years in the early part of the 20th century. And, and I just about wrenched my neck off as I turned around to have a look at, at that St. Nicholas's Church. Dr. Albert Schweitzer, one of the heroes of the Christian church in the modern era. A fully qualified medical doctor, a doctor of divinity, a gifted communicator, a concert organist, having held concerts all across Europe, a man with the world at his feet, an academic, a professor at the University of of Strasbourg, a genius. And what did Dr. Albert Schweitzer do? He spent the bulk of his life in Africa establishing the Lamborghini Hospital. He died in 1965. He's buried in the grounds of the hospital. People would say, what a waste. What a waste. Imagine what he could have done if he'd stayed in Europe. Did Dr. Schweitzer live an unhappy man? No way. Everything you read about Dr. Schweitzer, he was as fulfilled and as happy and as alive as you can possibly be. He had a different perspective on what a lot of people would consider to be the sources of happiness. Psalm 37, verse 4. Have a listen to this. I think Dr. Schweitzer would have appreciated this verse. Seek your happiness in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desire. Give yourself to the Lord, trust in him, and he will help you. And friends, there's the key. It's a change of desires. It's something that takes place from within. It's part of the transformational process of God's Holy Spirit within us. How did Paul put it in Philippians 3, 8? You know this verse so well. Philippians 3, 8, here it is. Paul says, not only, not only those things I reckon, every, or the things he's already mentioned about his prestige and qualifications he says i reckon everything is complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable the knowledge of christ jesus my lord for his sake i've thrown everything away i consider it all as mere garbage so that i may gain christ and be completely united in him friends this leaves one more question to ask and it's this does god deliberately make his will hard to discover I mean, is this some sort of cat and mouse game? God saying, ah, you thought that was it, but that's, that's, gotcha. You know, like, is that? No, no. <laughs> he doesn't operate like that. If you found yourself agonizing over a decision which you've prayed about, which you've thought about, you're probably answering yes to this question. Yeah, I think he does. Yeah, he, he makes it really hard to discover. That's been my experience. Many of us struggle in this area. Maybe we want another future in detail. Maybe we want 100% certainty before we make a move. Maybe. We're confusing happiness with holiness. Maybe we're looking for a Damascus Road experience where the sky is just going to open up and there's going to be light and voices and flashes by a Holden instead of a Falcon. You know, uh, like, let's. It's unlikely to happen. It's unlikely to happen. But does that mean God's will is hard to find? No way. Friends, the starting point. The starting point for God's will in our lives is a willingness to let him have his way in our lives. And I'll say that again. The starting point for discovering God's will in our lives is to let him have his way in our lives. That's the starting point. 
the more our lives beat time with the heartbeat of God, we will look, the more we'll instinctively know what is the appropriate and right thing to do. We'll see his signs more clearly. We'll respond to his promptings more readily. We'll understand his ways more fully. You know how it is in any relationship. Who are the people you're really close to? Husband, wife, close friend. Who's the person you know so well? Am I, am I not right in saying, you, you know how they think. You know what their needs are. That's what happens in close relationships. People become so much in sync and harmony that it's just amazing. That's what real love is like. And that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The more we get to know him, the less surprises there are going to be. You think of the people you love, are you ever likely to shock them? You might surprise them. Everybody loves surprises. But you're not going to shock them because you know what they think and feel and what their expectations are. A closer relationship with Jesus Christ enables us to discern more clearly what his will is in any situation. It doesn't remove the need for prayer and for reading the word and for discussing with other Christians, but it just makes the process that much more viscous. It flows that much more smoothly. I think that was Dr. Schweitzer's experience in a much smaller but nevertheless equally significant way. It can be ours. Let's join together in prayer, shall we? Well, Father God, we thank you that you've invited us to draw closer to you and that in that drawing closer to you and letting you have more of your way in our lives, we will discover more of your will for our lives. And so, Lord, help us to demystify what it means to seek your guidance. Help us to go back to the starting point of drawing closer to you in the belief that those who delight in you will find true happiness, real happiness. That's what we're seeking, Lord. Nothing superficial, nothing temporal. We want this to last, as Nick has reminded us this morning, for eternity. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.